0: Morning everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This Thursday morning, we have Dr. Florin Siler Woods on with us. Good morning, Dr. Woods. Good
1: morning. Good morning, Vernon. Nice to see you and nice to hear you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Woods is the director of finance for the Federation of Southern Co-ops. Where are you physically this morning?
1: I am physically in Alabama. We have locations in seven different states, including Alabama, even though our home office is in Georgia. And I'm also on the campus of Stillman College in Tuscaloosa right now.
0: Tuscaloosa? Alabama. Tuscaloosa, (laughs) Alabama, Stillman College. Okay. So you have been with the Federation, what, two, three, four months? How long have you been with the Federation?
1: Yeah, I I started officially with the Federation on November 1st of 2022. I had been affiliated a little bit with the Federation because the executive director is an alum of Stillman College and he was looking for ways to engage our students with the Federation. And so I met him and did some initiatives with him and attended the 55th anniversary celebration last year in August and I was sold so okay <laughs> there was no turning back once I once I got into the mission and understood what the Federation was all about it was an easy sell
0: okay so you're at Stillman College now you're in Tuscaloosa Alabama
1: yes I'm at Stillman College I'm still engaged with the students at Stillman College uh, but I'll also be in Epps Alabama tomorrow where the Federation has our training center So we have a beautiful training center to train all of our outreach staff uh, and all of our landowners and members. We have a wonderful training facility in Epps, Alabama. So I'll be there tomorrow all day working with uh, our field accountant and helping to train her.
0: So I have been to Epps, and I've been to your office in Georgia right outside of Atlanta. I just call it Atlanta. Yes, yes. And so I do like your training center. I've been there for a couple of your annual meetings and hopefully we'll be there again. I haven't been since COVID. So, four months basically, you've been with the Federation. So, let's talk a little bit about your background before the Federation. And so, um, your doctor, your doctor in what? What are you a doctor in?
1: I actually have, I'm a CPA but I actually have a doctorate in higher education administration. And the reason why I did that is uh, I'm a former partner of a CPA firm. And I knew because of my love for students, I had been adjuncting as an accounting professor, even while I was working. And so I knew that when I wanted to retire, that I wanted to retire into the classroom and work with students. I always told myself after practicing for I don't want, should I say 30 years, Vernon, because sure, that's, that's right. going to put some age on me. But after practicing for 30 years, I knew that I wanted to be the professor that I never had. And when I say that, um, and there's no disrespect, but a lot of um, professors uh, in the academy uh, maybe went through school and understand the theory of what they're teaching, but they don't have any pract- uh, practical experience. And so I thought that it's time now for a lot of practitioners to try to get back in the classroom and help students understand from a practical standpoint, you know, how this theory plays out in everyday practice.
0: So it's interesting you say that because uh, when I got my MBA, I focused on marketing and accounting and I had an offer with one of the big six accounting firms, but it was like all theory. And I didn't have a sense of the practicum. And as I started, started my business of property management and working with different CPAs doing audits for the properties I managed, one guy I had, I said, boy, if I had known this could be so much fun because he could tell a story. The CPA could tell a story and help with working with the, the, the federal government and IRS and state governments. I said, this could be fun, but I only saw myself behind a desk playing with numbers all day. I didn't see the other side of it. That that was the theory.
1: Well, that's interesting because that's the problem that our profession is having. The accounting profession is having a rough time attracting young talent. Now, it used to be when I first started out, I used to advocate for more minorities in the profession. Matter of fact, I was a member of National Association of Black Accountants, and I was one of the founders of their advocacy arm. And we would advocate for, you know, more uh, uh, people of color to come into the profession, because when you look at the history of our profession, some of the first black CPAs, you know, were still alive when I became a, a CPA. So it was a very conservative profession. It was hard for minorities to enter um, because, the you know, you could pass the test. But in order for you to get your license, you had to have some work experience, and no one would hire us, right? So we couldn't work under a CPA because we couldn't get hired. The first black CPAs were actually hired by Jewish firms, and that's the only way they were able to get licensed. Some of the first black CPAs that I knew in my lifetime had to pass, you know. (laughs) I mean, I'm just keeping it real. They had to pass, and then there was one lady— Yes, they had to pass for white to to even be able to sit for the exam. And then I met a woman in Virginia, and I forget her name, and I'm so sorry that I've, I've forgotten her name because I heard she just passed recently. She's phenomenal. She was the first black woman CPA in the state of Virginia. And I sat on a panel with her, and she told me her story. And the CPA exam usually is what, before it was on computers, it was offered live in one or two places in within the state, right? Mm-hmm. And so we would travel to wherever that test was being taken or given. And if you didn't live where the test was being given, you had to stay in a hotel. Well, this uh, lady could not, it was being given in Virginia Beach and there were no hotels that would allow black people to stay there. So she had to get a hotel in Richmond, Virginia and drive to Virginia Beach every day to take the test. And at that time, the test was three days long. Wow. So, yeah, she did it. And so those are sort of the heroes in my profession. They were willing to endure that kind of, you know, scrutiny and that that kind of disrespect just to be able to, you know, break the glass ceiling in the profession.
0: So Richmond to Virginia Beach is a two to two and a half hour drive. And she had yeah, to do that every and then morning, you sit both there and ways. test
1: all day. Yeah, and then you got to sit there and test all day. I mean, the test was Wednesday, Thursday, and half a day Friday for a long time. You know, I tease my students all the time. I'm like, "Oh, guys, you sit in front of a computer, and you can take the test, or <laughs> in front of a computer at a com- at a computer center, and you could take one part at a time." Now, and during my time, and during the other uh, older CPAs' time, we actually had to take all parts of the CPA exam in a three-day sitting. So it's
0: tough. Well, I'm, I I uh, I just did not want to go into it because my view of it turned out not to have been correct, <laughs> but that that was my view is you just sit around in an office playing with numbers all day and not with people and not dealing at the higher level of the issues that you end up with. So you got your CPA and you were a partner an accounting firm, what was that like for you?
1: That was interesting. I I didn't take a traditional route. I went into industry first. So I went from college to Lockheed Martin, which is a, a large government contractor. And then I went into the nonprofit world. So I was director of finance for one nonprofit and director of audit for another nonprofit. And so I went into the nonprofit world and then I went into public accounting. And what I found was that, you know, a lot of our students, they graduate from college and go straight into public accounting. But I went the other route because I started my own firm out of necessity. I needed to have more of a work-life balance for my family. And so I started my own firm and I expanded the firm because I first had a partner that was 10 years my senior. And so she taught me a whole lot of things. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to make a little (laughs) Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> because when I partnered with her, she really mentored me through a lot of of, of what it takes to run your own firm and, and to handle clients and to stay in compliance and do all the things. And so when she retired, I took a lesson from her and I merged my firm with, with two other partners that were ten years my junior. Okay. <laughs> and so they are actually still running the firm. They're still running the firm that I retired from. So Yeah. And it was natural. Uh, What happened was the three of us kept meeting each other in the state of Florida. Uh, We were going after some of the same government contracts and some of the same contracts. And I started looking around and I thought, you know, instead of us fighting, you know, for these, you know, 10 and $20,000 contracts, why don't we merge, right? Why don't we merge our firms and start going after million dollar contracts? And that's what we did
0: wow okay from ten thousand to million okay that's that's a little bit of a leap
1: well you can do that when you have the capacity yes you know a lot of times you have to go after peanuts because you don't have the capacity especially if you're a small business right you don't have the capacity to go after these big contracts you can't prove to the government or anyone else that you can actually you know facilitate that contract but when you have three offices in the state in one state so by the time we merged we had offices in Tampa, Orlando and Fort Lauderdale. And so we had over uh, over 70 employees. And so at that point we were able to handle a contract where you know you had to be everywhere at one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so you're able to do that when you when you grow and then you're able to hire more people and you're able to do more as a as your business grows.
0: Okay, so now you you're a partner and you Covered the state of Florida, you can go after million dollar contracts. You retire from that and then where did you go? What did you do from there?
1: I I, I worked on my PhD and I, I I took a couple of tax clients with me because by this time we could do taxes online. Took a couple of tax clients with me just to help pay the bills while I worked on my doctorate degree. And I worked on my doctorate degree, and, and I was teaching full-time uh, ever since 2015. So I just got my doctorate degree in 2015, and I started teaching full-time until I met the executive director of the Federation.
0: Cornelius Blanding. All right.
1: <laughs> he is a force. My brother. Yes, he is a force. He is a force. <laughs>
0: so you're, I, I assume you were teaching accounting at yes. Stillman? Okay. Yes.
1: And I met Cornelius because, again, he's an alum of Stillman and we were working on some things together. And he was telling me about, you know, his vision for the Federation and, of course, the 55 year history of the Federation and um, his f- vision for the future of the Federation. And I just thought this is great. I mean, you know, I, I have a, Doctor- n- a nonprofit history.
0: Dr. Woods, we're going to take our first break, and I really appreciate your wealth of knowledge. That so not only is Cornelius a force, he seems to be blessed that get people with your kind of skill set, your kind of talents. Do you, Do you know how unusual it is for somebody to have your skill set to start working in a company? It's, just, it's phenomenal. So I really appreciate that you're there working with Cornelius. And so when we come back. I want you to talk to me about this mission of the federation and how you saw you see yourself fitting into that mission and then we'll get to what you what you're doing but we'll be right back News Talk 14:50 WOLAN, Where information is power Welcome back everybody this- This is Everything Co-op. My name is Vernon Oaks, and Dr. Florin Woods is our guest today. She's with the Federation of Southern Co-ops. And she met Cornelius Blanding because he is an alumni of Stillman College, and that's where she was teaching. And she said he's a force. And before we start talking about Cornelius being the force and the mission of the Federation, can you give us a little bit of background of Stillman College? It's, you said it's in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I assume it's, it's a historically uh, black college? Black, uh
1: huh. Yeah, and sometimes people get that confused with Spellman, but here's the best way to recognize and remember Stillman. If you remember the Cosby show, they had this fictitious Hillman College and it spun off into a different world. You remember that? Yes. Well, yes. Hillman College in the Cosby show is the, is the uh, fictitious Stillman. So Stillman Stillman College is in Tuscaloosa. Uh, It's been here over 100 years. Turned out some really, really great alumni. It's had its heyday, but it's been having some difficulties just like all HBCUs have um, over the years, whether it be enrollment, financial difficulties, things like that. But that's pretty much the HBCU story. But HBCUs are very important because there is more of a nurturing of our students and As faculty of HBCU, you kind of understand that that's your job. It's not just teaching, um, but it's also nurturing um, and it's helping students make that transition from childhood to adulthood. And so I think there's still really an important space for HBCUs. And just for instance, Morehouse or something like that, you know, everybody says, oh, I could tell he was a Morehouse man. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because that was the culture and that's what they instilled in him. And so if you look at a lot of HBCU grads, you will see a sense of pride. You'll see that they have a different level of self-esteem. And that was what a lot of HBCUs intentionally developed in them was that, yeah, you know what? You can actually do this and you need to go out into the world and, you know, you need to, you know, be exceptional. Not just ordinary, you need to be exceptional.
0: <laughs> so I got that at Bluefield State College, uh, Bluefield, West Virginia. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, the white power structure came in and they took that college. Matter of fact, I was the last black president of the student body for a long time. Um, wow. But while I was there, there was majority staff, majority faculty member were black. And it was that nurturing that you talked about. And I taught for five years at Howard, and it's the same thing. So um, I taught 12 years all total, and my best experience was with Howard because of the students and the faculty, really, really great students. So I, I do know that, and I I totally get you say you're still in touch with the students because that's something that I love also, the energy that young folks give off and the excitement that they have. So um, and you were at Stillman today.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I have a wonderful dean. (laughs) He doesn't want to detach from me, you know, 100%. And Cornelius doesn't want me to detach from Stillman 100% because we still want students to have some engagement with the Federation. And it's important that with us being here in Alabama, in Epps, Alabama, which is only about 45 minutes away from Stillman, we can still engage the students at our training center. And so we still want to continue to do that.
0: So let's talk about the Federation, their mission and what attracted you to it and what pulled you away from the classroom where you got a PhD so you could be in the classroom. (laughs) What what pulled you to the Federation?
1: Well, okay, so it just so happens, Vernon, that I wrote a paper during my uh, PhD studies, during my graduate studies, I was looking at basically the definition of wealth. I was really struggling. Yeah, I was. I was looking at you know wealth. What is you know what is this thing? What what do we mean when we say wealthy? Right, and of course you can you can kind of you can put it into an accounting equation if you want. Right, you can put it into an equation, but really, what is it? You know what 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 really when we say the word wealth, what does it really mean? And so I started looking, and I I wrote this paper, and it basically the the gist of the paper says that our black ancestors were smarter than us. When they were emancipated, they asked for 40 acres and a mule. They asked for land. Right? They they didn't ask for a job. <laughs> they mm-hmm. honestly, you know, they did not ask for a job. They asked for 40 acres and a mule so that they could sustain themselves in the farming community uh cuz back then a mule was what you needed to 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 work the land. Right. And so can you imagine today, and of course, because the powers that be understood that land was wealth, they did not let that come about. So can you imagine where um, the black community would be today if all of us were given that 40 acres and a mule and we were taught how to hold on to that property, how to work that property and how to hand that property down to our ancestors and our heirs? Okay, mm-hmm. where would we be financially, right, if we understood the value of land ownership? And so that stayed in my head, that stayed in my head. So when I, when I ran into the mission, when I understood the mission of the federation, and their mission basically says that they're a catalyst for the development of self-supporting communities, Right. Through cooperative economic development and retention and advocacy, they're talking about land retention. They're talking about retaining those things that, you know, uh, basically the assets that our farmers have. Okay. And that is one of the greatest assets. And that's why it's so hard to get, it's so hard to keep.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And there are so many, yeah, there are so many forces against us in the land ownership area because the powers that be understand that that's wealth you know god ain't making no more earth right and so owning a piece of that is really you know wealth if you even if you go back into biblical days you know you could tell a a, a family's wealth by how much of the land they owned, right and yeah they had cattle they had livestock and all that But you had to have a substantial amount of land to house all that, right, to actually be able to to manage all that. And so it has always been a huge part of the wealth um, calculation is how much land do you have? You know, that's an asset that's not that never depreciates. Right. It's not how many cars and houses. It's a it's an asset that does not depreciate.
0: It appreciates. it it,
1: it appreciates yeah. yes yes now we did have kind of a funny economy but that wasn't the land's problem right that wasn't that was a housing problem <laughs> but the land again to your point the land never depreciated right that, mm-hmm. that the house that the the house that was on the land had some depreciation issues but not the land itself and so when I realized what the federation was doing and of course the history that it was trying to correct. I just I said, Hey, I gotta be a part of this and if I can help, especially in a in a in a important way, and that's making sure that our financial systems and our finances are in order, then I'm I'm on board.
0: So the Federation is co op development, land retention and advocacy. Yes. And you said, Okay, I did this this paper uh on wealth building. And people that have been listening to this show know that I talk about this, the gap in wealth between white families and black families, white families, average wealth before the pandemic was 171,000 for a family of four, $171,000 average wealth. And a lot of that was in housing businesses. And of course, you have more poor whites than you have poor blacks and browns put together. but our percentage of poor people in our population is much higher. But in terms of the total number, so you have all of these poor people in the white community and they still have an average of 171,000. And then you go to the black community, our average wealth is seventeen thousand one one tenth of the wealth. I mean, white families, black families. Mm -hmm. wealth, And I saw another stat that said that if, it was a black family that had a female as the head of the household. The, the average wealth of black families with females as the head of household had a negative $6,000 wealth. Mm -hmm. That means that they owe more than they owned.
1: Yeah. That's sad. That's saddening. It it makes me sad. We got to,
0: we got to stop and come back. Uh, I'm sorry. We're going to go right into our break here. back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. And today we have Dr. Florin Woods, who's Director of Finance for the Federation of Southern Co-ops. And before she went to the Federation, she was a professor at Stillman College in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. All right. Yes. And she was saying that she likes to get students engaged with the Federation And the Federation's mission is co-op development, land retention, and advocacy. And she did a paper on wealth building. And we were talking about the wealth gap between whites and black families. And so what turned her on and got her excited and pulled her away from a majority of teaching is that the Federation's is about creating wealth, creating wealth by co-op development and land retention. And, Dr. Woods, you were talking about this whole wealth gap thing before we took the break. I was so engrossed with it, I didn't even know we were having a, a, a break. <laughs> but, but can we go back and you tell us what you were getting ready to say about this wealth gap?
1: I was saying that, and this is one of the things that I teach my students, and usually during this session their eyes are opened. But I tell them, I said, you know, you have to understand the difference between income and wealth. Okay, and I give them an exercise and I say, now, you know, a a drug dealer makes a lot of income. Right. (laughs) But but what does he have to show for it? It's called hood rich. Right. So what what do you what do you have to show for it? Right. First of all, if you're going to stay out of jail, you got to kind of stay under the radar anyway. So you can't have a whole lot of stuff. But it's really our assets. Right. And even if you look at the accounting equation, the part of the accounting equation, that's that that's equity. It, that is the wealth part. So in other words, it is our assets minus our debt, right? So if we fully own, if we if we wholly own an asset, all right, that is how you build wealth. You, you buy assets, you try to buy assets that don't depreciate, right? And you pay down your debt, you pay down your liabilities, you pay down, you know, the mortgages and things like that. And so now you fully own that asset. And when you fully own that asset, That is a fully owned asset now that you can hand down to your children and your children's children and so forth and so on. And that's how you develop this generational wealth. It is not enough to hand down a house that has a mortgage. If you hand down a house that has a mortgage, now you have to ensure that your children have enough income to pay the mortgage off, right? But if you handed down a house that didn't have a mortgage, now you're handing down an asset that... Whether your whether your child made you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or whether they made you know twenty thousand dollars a year, as long as they could pay the electric bill, you know, and maybe in the taxes of course, they can they can stay in that house. They can keep that house, and so that is that that's where I think we're missing the mark. And, and it's it's great to have a, a beautiful house in a, a nice little subdivision, but how much of that house do you actually own? And how much of that land do you actually own, right? Houses are usually on top of each other. And so it is good. It is a very good start to say, okay, I own a house. That's a that's a huge accomplishment. But what's an even greater accomplishment is owning land, right? And owning as much of it as you can get your hands on because it's not going anywhere. And so... We just became landowners three years ago. I convinced my husband to purchase two and a half acres. And that's a small small amount compared to a lot of our members in the Federation. But I just said, you know, we got to start somewhere. So we purchased two and a half acres and and built our home on two and a half acres. And I told him, I said, we're going to buy this two and a half acres. Well, first of all, we're going to sell all this big, fancy stuff that we created while we were in corporate America (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we're going to. We're going to buy some land and we're going to build a house cash. And that's what we did. And so, again, how can I also come to work as a professor and work again in the nonprofit world after making a lot of money in public accounting is that I don't have the debt. Right. I don't have the debt that I had, you know, when I was when I was at the peak of my career. I don't I don't have that debt. and So now I'm free to make choices. Uh, And I just talked to a CPA the other day about that, and, she, and her and I had a long conversation about it, and she said her family doesn't understand that. She's paid off her mortgage, and they were like, oh, as a matter of fact, her girlfriend was like, we bought our houses at the same time you bought yours. And, you know, now she's still a partner of a firm, but she, she's working from home because she has that choice. She has choices because she doesn't have the level of debt that they have, right? And so... If we understand that and we learn that, uh, we'd be in a, a better place. And I think what the Federation is doing is they're educating, they're advocating, and they're helping landowners really hold on to what's important, and that's their land.
0: So 40 acres today, if it's, if it's running um, $6,000 an acre, it's going to cost you $240,000. And it depends on where you're going to buy these acre's. And so you bought two and a half acres, built oh. your home, and it's free. So I just want to go back to wealth a minute because you said assets and debts, and a lot of people don't know what that is. So I have it as what yes. you own minus what you mm-hmm. owe is yes. your wealth, is, is is your net worth. Very well put. Okay. So you've got to get to where Very you can well own some things. Okay. And there's this book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that my son gave to me and and this rich dad was teaching that the only thing that is an asset is if it's able to bring you some income he didn't call a house an asset now i I don't agree with that totally but i like the idea that you get an asset that will bring you income and uh, he drove an old truck he didn't put money into you know a a big car and all of that so it, it is how can you get to own things and owe very little. That takes away because debt you have to pay interest on. You want to own things that pay you interest while you're sleeping. So, yeah, that's that's wealth. So, I want to go back to the Federation now. You have all of his wisdom. How did that wisdom translate into the Director of Finance? What do you do on a day-in and day-out basis at the Federation?
1: Well, what's most important right now is making sure that our finances are in order because we have contracts with with stakeholders that we have to make sure we're in compliance with. We have to make sure that we are basically accounting for the money the way that we should. Now, when I look back on the Federation, we've always used the money according to the way we say we're going to use the money, right? We've always done that. The Federation has been really a stickler with using the money for what we say we're doing with the money, right? Mm-hmm. The issue is you got to you gotta prove that, right? You got to keep those records shored up um, so that at any time, if anybody asks you, you could produce a report to show the good work that you've been doing. And so my goal is to make sure that at any time, if any of our funders, if any of our stakeholders want to know exactly what we're doing, that we can literally push a button and say, here you go. Right we don't have to take a week to figure out, okay, how do we put together this nice nicely put report that's hundred percent accurate and da 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 I don't want that right I don't want people scrambling, so my priority is yeah, here you go here's here's the report, you know, and it's and it's accurate and and uh here's the good work that we've been doing, and here it is in a report
0: so this uh, report is a bunch of numbers that tells the story, and that's what I didn't get in yes. accounting class, okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't get yes, the story yes. part of what the numbers tell.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Okay. Yes. I got all of this. It is
1: hard. It's hard burning when you're a student because when you're a student you you don't have a lot of practical experience anyway. So even when I try to tell you the story, it's hard for you to see the story because you don't really understand how business works. But see when you got out into the real world, and you understood how business works, then the story was formed for you because it was like, oh, okay, now this makes sense. And that's the challenge of being in the classroom is trying to make things real for students. I give you a perfect example. Again, I'm giving away my age. I can't use Enron as an example in my classroom anymore. A lot of my students weren't even born <laughs> during Enron, right? <laughs> so when you, when you talk about, when you bring up a subject like fraud, Uh, And and when you bring up a a subject like ethics and you try to use those examples that played out in the news, you know, you got to come up with new examples that they can relate to because they weren't born during Enron. And that was one of our biggest examples of where ethics went wrong, right? In the
0: accounting profession. uh,
1: In the accounting profession. That's right.
0: Yeah. So being out in the real world, managing apartment buildings, uh, cooperative buildings, I really got to know a lot of different CPAs that did the audits, and I had it, and I told one of them that if I had known the story that the numbers tell, okay, and that story could be a good story, or it could be a bad story, In Enron, in they used mm-hmm. the numbers to tell a story that wasn't the truth, and that's why there was this trouble right. and this fraudulent behavior. So how does the engagement of these students at Stillman with the Federation give them this real world? Can you give us an example of one of the, one of the cases, one of the, one of the projects that they, the students worked on?
1: Oh, absolutely, sure. For instance, the Federation has allowed young people and students to come in, sometimes under fellowships or internships, and sort of learn about the Federation one of the things that Cornelia said to me um, when we were talking is that his concern is that a lot of students in college now really don't understand agriculture, you know, any any agriculture as a business, right? They don't understand or know about forestry, right? Maybe they'd be interested if they understood what a forester does, right? Maybe they'd be interested if they understood all the different things they could do uh in agriculture, right? But because That's not something that's very popular in schools and not taught everywhere. A lot of students may not, you know, be aware of what's going on. And so a lot of times we just need to make students, like you said, you didn't know how fun this could be or you didn't understand (laughs) that this was a story and how important your role is in telling that story Um, Sometimes you just need to expose students to different things so that they can realize, oh, I have options. I have choices. And for me, I actually would have been an engineer. I have a whole year of engineering credits in college because in high school, because of my math and science grades, they told me I should go into engineering. Mm -hmm. And I went into engineering in college and I struggled a little bit in my freshman year because my first taste of freedom, you know, Uh my first taste of freedom. So, you know, I I remember that. Yeah, I was, I was, I was everything I wanted to pledge. I wanted to do all this stuff. But anyway, what happened is I did an internship and of course life brings you full circle. Back then it was Martin Marietta. And of course I did wind up working for Lockheed Martin, but it was Martin Marietta back then. And I went in as an engineering intern and I hated it. I literally hated it. And I thought, well, okay, I can't do this the rest of my life. I don't like it. I hate it. Right. Not to mention that I had a hard time with calculus. So anyway but when i decided when i decided okay okay how do i put the math skills you know what do i do with these math skills or whatever i want to ask you to
0: stop right now yes and we'll come back and talk about how you put those math skills because i my Uh undergrad degree was in math and that's why i thought accounting too (laughs) but we're we're going to take our final break and we will come back we talk a little bit more about the federation but i really want to talk about the future in this next one so we'll get to how you see the future in accounting for the federation and this Cash engagement it. of of students Cash. we'll be right back please don't touch that down welcome back everybody this is barn oaks and the program is everything co-op and today we have dr florin woods who's Director of Finance for the Federation of Southern Co-ops. And before we took break, we were talking about the Federation and the benefits of the Federation. So, Dr. Woods, could you finish the statement you were making before we took the break?
1: Oh, absolutely. We were talking about basically making sure that students have an experiential learning experience because uh, you were talking about the fact that if you would have known certain things about math and accounting and what you could do with it, you would have been better informed when you graduated. And I was sharing my story because I was glad that I had that experience interning as an electrical engineer because if I would have struggled through a four-year degree in electrical engineering and then gotten a job that I hated, that would have been really, you know, that would have been tragic, right? So I think it's real important uh, for our students to have those experiences. Um, so that they know, okay, this is how this degree applies to the real world and the real work, and do you like it? Do you not like it? You know, what do you, what do you think uh, about it? Because you need to do that so that they have a chance to either embrace it or switch gears, right, before they invest so that in that four-year degree.
0: So you switched gears and went into accounting, so you could use your math in accounting. Okay. So Cornelius is providing those internships and fellowships so the students at Spelman can get this real life experience at the Federation.
1: Yes, and the, and the students at Spelman, yes, they can they can they can engage with the uh, they can engage with the training center at South Alabama in different internships and fellowships and learn more about the Federation. And when they graduate, they might they might want to join the Federation.
0: So they can join the federation like you did. (laughs) Yes. yes. So when we start talking about wealth creation and we're talking about this land, I just want to tell everybody out there, we're having Dr. Jenny Stevens on February 9th. Uh, She's the CEO for the Center for Heirs' Property Preservation. So we're going to continue to talk about this heirs' property and how you keep the property. So getting the property is one thing but then keeping it to knowing the law so that you can keep it, so you can pass it down to your heirs, to the children and the grandchildren that you were talking about earlier. So I'd like that you found out that the federation used the money that they had gotten. I know they get money from USDA, Department of Agriculture. They get different grants. So you have to make sure that they can tell the story. And you said push a button. What do you mean by push a button and get that report to tell the story?
1: I mean that, you know, we have accounting systems now, you know. There was a time when it was called keeping the books, and we were actually writing stuff down in books. But we have these electronic systems, and these electronic systems capture all of our activities. So any money that comes into the Federation should be accounted for. Any money that goes out of the Federation should be accounted for. And when it's accounted for properly and on time and consistently, then it's just as simple as pressing a button on your accounting system and saying, you know, I need this information from, you know, January 1st to December 31st, 2022, boom, there it is. Or if somebody wants to know, you know, uh, what we spent on a particular conference, right? So we did a conference for uh, farm owners in Alabama, Alabama or in Albany, Georgia, and we want to know, you know, was that successful financially? You know, what kind of revenues we had, what kind of expenses we had. You know, we we want to work like a well-oiled machine. So all of this stuff is just automatic. Uh, And any manager or any stakeholder in the organization should be able to get this information, uh, and they shouldn't have to wait a week or two weeks or a month to get it.
0: So do you also have in your accounting system that if XYZ Foundation gave the Federation a million dollars that you could account for that a million dollars. You could not only account for on an annual basis, but by project or by the source of income. Do you have it set up that way also?
1: Oh, absolutely. We have it set up by line item. So, for instance, we can tell you by line item, line item, line item, according to the budget that we gave to our funder to say this is how we plan on, on spending the money you know we can actually create a report now that shows here's the actual money we got in and here's the way we spent it and we we mean per line like but with salaries travel you know supplies whatever it is we need to be able to show and we can show that now but i i would like for it to be more automated is what i'm saying we can show that now but for me you know in order for me to say it's successful that, 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 that I've done something successfully at the Federation, I want that stuff to be like clockwork where, yeah, we can prepare a report for you, but I don't want us to have to stop what we're doing and prepare that report. I, I want us to be able to say, here you go, button push, <laughs> here's the, here's okay. the report.
0: <laughs> That's the future of the Federation's accounting and finances what do you see the future with uh, the Federation and Stillman College and working with the students?
1: well, you kind of you kind of touched on um, you kind of touched on because we were talking about a little bit the future kind of touched on technology a little bit when I said just push a button." but we're actually getting there with our outreach staff, our outreach staff now they all have iPads, they can actually go out in the field with our members and collect data from our members, and that stuff is sent back to the state office, to the state association. And so one of the important reasons why you want to keep young people involved in your organization is because they are much better with technology than we are, right?
0: Yep. I mean,
1: I didn't know my own could do certain things until my uh, students looked at me with disgust and said, oh, (laughs) Professor. (laughs) this? You know, just press that or just, you know, you don't mean you, you're not using this function. And I'm like, I didn't even know that I had that function. So it's, it's, it's good to always engage young people because they have fresh ideas. They understand technology. They need the history because the history is important. But they, they need to be able to take that history and, and turn it into fresh ideas, you know, turn it into uh, how do we better use technology, You know, how do we actually use this technology to help our farmers even be better? And so that's part of the outreach, you know, and and that's one of the benefits of cooperative, right? Because now you develop best practices, and so whatever this farmer is doing successfully over here, we can share with the the farmer, you know, in another state because he's part of the cooperative.
0: So what a farmer in Alabama is doing and have learned they can take that same knowledge and give it to the farmer in Mississippi or Louisiana or uh, your 13 states that you all work with. Absolutely. That, that.
1: Absolutely. And the Federation is equipped to translate that for them, right? The Federation is, is equipped to say, okay, here's what's happening in Alabama, and so we want to share this with, you know, Mississippi. And we have the experts that can translate that to the
0: different states. Okay. So in the last 30 seconds, what – Piece of advice or wisdom you have for the audience?
1: Well, I would say, Vernon, that our show wrapped up with this: that the federation is here to advocate and to assist landowners, and really to help lessen that wealth gap. And we all need to take a, a lesson from cooperatives because we could all translate that to other areas too.
0: Thank you so very much, Dr. Dr. Wood. Everybody out there, uh, increase your wealth. It also increased your health. We'll be back next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. News Talk, 1450 O L A M, where information is power.